0: Well, it's great to be with you this morning, and thank you for the reminder of the opportunity to ask you to pray for the upcoming, my upcoming trip. I like you calling it a missionary trip or missionary journey. That's a, it is. It is indeed, uh, because we'll actually my tour will actually be going on the missionary journey of Paul, primarily the second journey in Greece and also part of uh, Turkey and then um, Rome as well. So it should be a great, great time. But thanks for thanks for praying. When you don't see me next time, it'll remind you to pray. Because I'll uh, <laughs> and the next couple times you'll be uh, you'll be reminded about it, or a few times. About a month, I guess, is what it'll be. So also be doing some filming right afterwards for my business. So it's uh you gotta grab those moments when you can. You never know when the world's gonna shut down again. But pray for uh, please pray for safety. For me as well as uh, the almost 40 people that will be traveling with me to these great places. A couple of weeks ago I was stuck in a traffic jam on, the, on a road. And was uh, waiting and waiting and waiting and finally to get past the, the, the jam. And I got up to where the scene of this accident was. And it turns out that it was a horrible wreck. There were paramedics. I mean, there's probably three or four fire trucks parked blocking traffic. They had diverting all the traffic off. The oncoming traffic was actually put on a side road. And those of us going this particular direction were able to go by the scene of the accident and actually see it. And honestly, I'd never seen anything like it before. There was this man, this dead man, laying on the highway in the middle of the highway, with a sheet over him, and his hands and his feet were sticking out of the sheet and I just drove by and just thought well, wow that 's something you don 't see every day it was It was very sobering <laughs> i didn't mean, i didn 't mean it to be funny, but I guess it sort of sounded that way i didn 't mean it to be funny, but it was sobering because it was um, it just all of a sudden, reality comes into your into your mind. Um, and in fact, at the next stoplight, when I could grab my phone safely, I just texted my whole family and said, "Just want you to know how much I love you." It's so sobering to come face to face with an accident like that. Like like that man was probably simply just driving home from work, and he didn't realize he was driving home from work wherever his home in eternity would be. A few years back, a tornado ripped through Moore, Oklahoma. Do you remember that? Not too long ago. A group from our church actually went up to help do some cleanup up there, and we went to this neighborhood, and it looked like, I mean, it looked like some apocalyptic disaster movie. There was nothing left but the foundations of this whole neighborhood gone. I mean, gone just the, found the, the concrete foundations, and then all this rubble. It looked like the houses had been put through a chipper. I mean, just splinters, not two-by-fours, splinters, and bricks, you know, and bricks were like individual bricks, or maybe one or two still stuck together. But can you imagine? And there was, there was pieces of grass and straw stuck in the bricks, and where the wind had blown grass and straw so hard that it actually penetrated the the bricks. But in one of these uh, neighborhoods that we went to, every house was gone but one house. One house was still standing, and I thought, well, I got to go see this house. So, Kathy and I walked into this house, and everything was like untouched. I opened the cabinets. Dishes were still stacked in the cabinet. It was the only house, and then every other house around it was literally gone and had been put through the chipper. I just thought, wow, what an incredible demonstration of not only the power of nature, or really the power of the God of nature, and the power of sovereignty, that this one house stood there and all the others were literally taken down to nothing. Our world is full of contrasts. We have the beauty of the mountains, the sunsets, the, even the love that we have between us. And then there's also the contrast of the horrible things we see, like a global pandemic or disasters or hurricanes, or even fatal accidents on the road or the bitterness between us, not the love between us. In some sense, we can, we can take this for granted until we come face to face with it, and then all of a sudden, we see the contrast, or we see what we might even call a contradiction. Not just a contrast, but a contradiction in the love and the power of God. There is a tension in this world that demands resolution. We see the beauty of of the world. We see the evil in the world. That demands resolution. There is something in us that just demands resolution when there's something unresolved. You go to a movie. Don't you hate those movies that don't end well? You know, it's like the, the bad guy wins or there's just, just horrible tragedy and then all of a sudden they roll the credits. I saw a movie like that this week and I just... I literally said out loud, no, I just devoted two hours of my life to a disappointment. We were listening to the the beautiful piano music, the hymns that we always get to hear when I was walking in, and I thought, you know, what if on every one of those, she didn't play the very last note? We would just sort of feel wrong about that. It's like, play the last note, you know? We demand resolution. We need it. We, we long for it. We live in a world that is unresolved. And here's the thing, our own hearts are that way. It's not that we just look out in the world and we wish that everyone would get it together like us. But we can look at our own hearts and see the contradiction that we have love for others and yet we despise others. We have a love for God and yet we disobey God. There is a tension that demands resolution. Turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John. Working our way through a single message of each of these 66 books of the Bible, we're getting pretty well close to the home stretch here. 1 John is um, written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John had quite a nice variety of... um, Contributions to the New Testament. I mean, Paul, you know, got he's just—he's kind of boring, you know. Just epistles. That's all he did. Well, of course, he's not boring, but you know what I mean. Just one genre. That's it. The Apostle John, he had a gospel. This is the the beloved biography of the Lord Jesus that focuses on the the deity of Jesus. Uh, John also wrote the Book of Revelation. This uh, book, unlike any other book in the whole New Testament, really the whole Bible this apocalyptic, wonderful uh, book that talks about the resolution that we're yearning for. And John also wrote three letters. I guess you could sort of argue that the book of Revelation is a letter, but uh, it's a letter like any any other, unlike any other. But the epistles, First John, Second John, Third John. We're going to look at John's first letter, or at least just a portion of Revelation, uh, all of chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2, as it sets the scene for this resolution that we, that we yearn for, resolving, you might say, that tension that you feel within you. Look at the very first verse of this epistle. John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. You could almost guess that the Apostle John wrote this if you didn't know the Apostle John wrote this, because some of the wording and the phrases and the themes of 1 John sound very similar to what uh, the Gospel of John talks about, about what was in the beginning, about uh, the word, Jesus as the word, here he's called the word of life, and he he is manifested. I mean, just so so many of the similar themes are here. But John also says very specifically, he's an eyewitness. He saw it, or he says, we saw it. We heard. We touched. Uh, Jesus, this eternal one, was manifested. We're told, verse two, we've seen it. We we we've touched it. Some suggest that this is uh, that John is writing this as a warning or as a. Uh, uh, apologetic against early Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that uh, Jesus came just as a spirit, but not in bod- bodily form. Pure heresy. And uh, John says, nope, we touched him. We saw him, we heard him. there there was a body. In fact, we we better hope there was a body because otherwise there was no crucifixion <laughs> and we're still in our sins. But John tells us why he's telling us what he saw, what he heard, what he touched. In fact, it's sort of the purpose for the whole book. He says um, there in verse 3, the so that. We proclaim this so that you too may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. Fellowship, you had to sum up the the theme of the book of 1 John, it'd be fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with people, and how that how that. That word fellowship, the dynamics play out in our lives. Um, we, um, you could probably guess what the word for fellowship is in the original. In this class, if any class, we should know what it is. What is it? Koinonia, Koinonia exactly. It doesn't mean small groups where you get together and eat. Koinonia means fellowship. It's also translated as uh, communion or participation or partnership but it basically means something that is shared. Its root meaning meaning is something that is shared as opposed to something that's just your own. God created us for koinonia. He created us for one another, to be in relationship, not to be in isolation. To be in isolation, not in isolation, but in relation. And notice, too, he says in verse 4, These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Joy is linked to fellowship. If you are in fellowship with God, you have joy. If you're not in fellowship with God, there ain't joy in life. If you're in fellowship with those close to you, there's joy. If you're not in fellowship with those close to you, there's not joy. It's rigged that way. We have a tension in the world that needs resolution. So he goes on in verse 5 to tell us, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This begins to give us an explanation of why we have this tension in our hearts, because God is light. Uh, John likes to talk about who God is. In the gospel, he says God is love. Uh, uh, And later in this same book, he says God is love. In the gospel, he wrote that God is spirit. And here we're told God is light. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that when you walk into a dark room and flip the switch, God shows up. It doesn't mean that he is light like in a physical sense. It is a metaphor for holiness, for purity. To say that there is no darkness at all in God is is emphasizing his absolute holiness and John will often use this in fact Jesus used this uh, this contrast between light and darkness he talked about the lightness within you or the darkness within you it's the same idea that God is absolutely holy he is pure he is perfect without evil I saw a, a quote by Tanya Donnelly kind of an odd Name, I wonder if anybody in here knows who Tanya Donnelly is or was. She uh, was the lead singer of the alternative rock band in the nineties called Belly. What a great name for your rock band hey let 's call it Belly. Perfect. Well, actually, she told the Rolling Stone magazine i read I saw this quote um, i actually don 't read Rolling Stone magazine, but <laughs> i saw the I saw the quote. From the magazine. Anyway, here's what she said. She said, For some reason, God is an embarrass is embarrassing to people. It doesn't embarrass somebody to talk about how they got completely bombed the night before and puked all over themselves. But God is a really embarrassing subject, and that's kind of strange. I thought, you are exactly right, Tanya. It is strange, isn't it? And it's strange because the reason it's strange is because God is light. God is holy. We are not. So we don't want to talk about God. Because as soon as we who are darkness start talking about that which is light, it shines light on our sin. We don't want to talk about God. We'd rather talk about, commiserate, about the fact that we got hung over the night before. Thankfully, though, God has provided a solution to that problem. If sin is the problem if darkness in our life is the problem then we've got to get rid of the darkness and god gets rid of darkness by invading you might say by entering in have you ever noticed that you can add a little light to darkness and it gets rid of darkness but you can add all the darkness you want to light and it doesn't get rid of the light interesting metaphor because it really works god invaded and brought his light to a dark world, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take away the problem, to die on on the cross for our sins, as a payment for our sins. And thus, he removed our sins by paying the penalty. And all we have to do is believe it. Just have faith that, that what God did for us is true, and our sins are forgiven. John is writing to believers, to those who know what I just said. And he reminds even believers God is holy. Interesting. We have to be reminded that. And so, to have fellowship with the God who is holy, guess what has to be true of us? Look at verse 6. John says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. And that makes sense. If you've got the new international version, it says uh, something like, if we claim to have fellowship. I like that. If we claim to have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. We don't have fellowship with him. We uh, do not practice the truth. We may say the truth, but we are not practicing the truth. Now, remember, there's two kinds of forgiveness. We've talked about this before, but boy, it sure bears repeating. Two kinds of forgiveness in the Bible. For example, the moment of, from the moment of conception, the moment, moment that we were conceived in the body, bodies of our mother, we uh, were children of our parents. There's nothing that can ever be done that would change that. We're born, our parents are our parents, whether we like them or we don't. We are genetically connected to our parents. There's nothing that can change it. We are our parents' children. Now, when we disobey, we are not in fellowship with our parents. And they made it known, didn't they? And their goal was not simply to punish, but was to correct, to bring us back into fellowship. But we're still, no matter how much out of fellowship we are with our parents when we were growing up, they were still our parents. Nothing we could do could change that. They may have wished they could change it, but there's nothing that that could be done. You see the connection? When we are born again, we are a child of God, and nothing we do can ever change that. It is an act of God. It's not an act by us. It's an act of God, and when we are born again, we are uh, God's children, and nothing can ever change it. There is, a, there is a spiritual connection, every bit as real as the genetic connection, you might say, between us and our physical parents. But when we sin, when we walk in the darkness, we're not in fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And so He has to, has to cause, either through the Word or through conversations or whatever, what's necessary to bring us back into fellowship. John is writing to those who are believers about this issue of being out of fellowship with God when we sin, when we walk in the darkness. We don't have fellowship. And he says, as we read in verse 6, if we say, if we claim we have fellowship with God, but we are walking in the darkness, we're lying. And we're not practicing the truth that we know. We are not in fellowship with God. So the lack of fellowship John's talking about here is not a heaven and hell issue. It is an issue of relationship. So John gives us the alternative, and it's, the, it's what we want in verse 7. He says, but, wonderful contrast, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. To walk in the light is to to obey God, to have obedience to God's word. And two things happen, John says, when we do that. First of all, he says we have fellowship with one another. You kind of expect, that's kind of a strange way to put it, if we walk in the light, you kind of expect he would say, you have fellowship with God, right? But he doesn't. He says, you have fellowship with one another, which is nice because it gives us an insight to how we have fellowship with one another, that our fellowship with one another is uh, contingent, you might say, on our fellowship with God and vice versa. You you can't be out of fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ and be in fellowship with God, that it works both ways. I remember Dr. Toussaint used to teach us that uh, your relationship with people or your relationship with God can often be determined or, or discerned about your relationship with people. It's a very insightful observation, and John would amend that right here. The second thing he says is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Again, not heaven and hell, but for fellowship, that the blood of Christ is sufficient, that all it takes for us to be back in fellowship with God is, as we'll see, confession. So here's a principle, one of three from our text today. First principle very simple. Obedience to God is the key to fellowship with God. Obedience to God is the key to fellowship with God. Remember, Jesus used to talk about abide with me. You know the, the old word abide? Uh, I think the more recent translations refer to it as remain. He said remain in me and I in you. He doesn't mean remain a Christian. He means remain in fellowship. That's what abide means. To abide. In fact, if, if we were to keep reading 1 John, the rest of the book, it would talk about abiding or remaining in fellowship with, with uh, Christ or with God. It's the same idea. Obedience to God is the key to fellowship with God. And it is also the key to joy in the Christian life. If I'm out of fellowship with God or with others, I'm miserable. I, I can't shake the misery. I can't sleep. I can't think, I can't work. It is built into me and to all of us that if we know we're walking in darkness, there is this, this shadow that just overhangs us that we can't get rid of. Have you ever tried to get away from your shadow? <laughs> Doesn't matter how fast you run, you can't get away from your shadow. You know the only way to get away from your shadow? Turn to the light. That's right. If you're facing the light, you don't see your shadow. If you turn away from the light, you see your shadow. What a great picture. Isn't that a great metaphor? It's so true. How many times, how many days have we spent wasted staring at our shadow? Watching the movement of it. We don't have to do that. We don't have to have that that burdened sense of being in the darkness if we turn to the light turn to God. Not a perfect illustration, but you get the point. Walking in the light doesn't mean we live perfect lives. It means we do it the way God's prescribed it. Look at verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I love that John is a realist. We're sinners and sinners big surprise, tend to sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Have you ever met anybody that thought they were perfect? I mean, other than your kids. <laughs> there is a branch of Christianity that believes you can eventually progress toward perfectionism. And uh, Lewis Sperry Chaffer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, was actually walking with one of these gentlemen one day, and this gentleman's hat Blew away the the wind caught it, and this this guy cussed, and Schaefer turned over to him and said, "I thought you like believed in perfectionism." He says, "Oh well, that wasn't a sin; that was a mistake." <laughs> See, if you just redefine sin, then it isn't wrong. I remember reading about a medical missionary who lived in a uh, who, who worked and served in a tribe in the third world and this medical missionary discovered that this tribe was suffering from a disease that came from their drinking water and he tried to describe it to the to the tribe and to the chief and they weren't making the connection so he brought the chief into the lab and showed the chief looking under the microscope the bacteria that was in the water and the chief you know finally gets it and then that night Uh, the chief and some of the tribesmen came in and smashed every microscope in the lab. Problem solved. Right? That's sort of like, you know, when you see a warning light on your dashboard, you just go get a ball pin hammer and just take care of that warning light. That's no problem now. We do the same thing. We have a track record of smashing microscopes, don't we? Our spouse says something we don't like. Well, now it's our spouse's fault. Our pastor says something we don't like. Well, we're just going to go to another church. An employee finally has the guts to not be a rubber stamper. They find themselves fired. You see, walking in the light of obedience doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It does mean you have to be honest. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So, what's the solution? Beautiful solution, very next verse, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've probably each quoted that verse hundreds of times in our life, but isn't it beautiful to see it in its context? Beautiful to see it in its context. Walking in the light of obedience doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It just means you have to be honest. How do we do it? We confess. No matter how much we grow in the Christian life, we never outgrow the need for cleansing. It's kind of like saying, you know, I had a really good bath last week. I'm set. No, you stink. You need to go take a shower. That's the way it is with the Christian life, isn't it? We may be good for a minute, but... We've got to keep being cleansed. It's sort of like what, well, it's exactly like what Jesus told Peter that night in the upper room. Remember in the upper room, uh, Jesus came around to wash feet, and Peter said, you ain't washing my feet. And Jesus says, well, you know, you're not going to be in fellowship with me if you don't. Peter says, well, wash the whole thing. Jesus says, he who has bathed doesn't need to be washed, just needs to have his feet cleaned. That's exactly what John is teaching here. If you're saved, you don't have to be resaved all over again. You just need to have your feet washed by Jesus. You just need to confess, and then you're back in fellowship. It's the same idea. And our ordinances, if you think of it that way, our ordinances illustrate this beautifully. We have two ordinances given by Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. One is to be done once at the beginning of your Christian life, and the other is to be done repeatedly all throughout the Christian life. Baptism illustrates that you're saved, that you place your faith in Jesus, you know, dead, and raised again with Christ. Beautiful picture, but you do it once at the beginning of your walk with Christ. But communion, on the other hand, or koinonia, beautifully called, is something we do repeatedly, and we repeatedly need to. Like the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, let a person examine himself and then let him eat or and drink, etc. There is to be this sense of cleansing that we're required when we take communion. It's a beautiful picture even in our ordinances. And this is what John is teaching here. All you got to do is confess. Just be honest with God. Quit looking at your shadow and turn to the light and be honest with God. doesn't say you have to promise never to do it again because that doesn't work. It doesn't say you have to clean up your lives first. All he says you have to do is confess. And I love this part. Look at verse 9 again. We just read it, but look at it again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and look at the last part of this verse and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness see even on our best day we're only going to confess we're only going to confess the tip of the iceberg that's all we see we don't see the motive below the motive below the motive below the motive that, that caused us to sin we just confess, you know, the big sin that sticks up that everyone sees and that bothers us. And honestly, that's all we'll even perceive at times. But but we're told that if we will simply confess what we know, that God goes the next step and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. How else could we keep walking in the light if God didn't cleanse us from all unrighteousness? What a beautiful promise that his grace even Is involved in our Christian life so that we're saved. I mean, not just not saved, but so that we're back in fellowship with Him to the nth degree. What a wonderful promise. I love that. Um, And notice that it's a promise, it's not a feeling. He doesn't say, if you confess your sins faithful and just, you know, to make you feel better. No, you're forgiven. You're cleansed from all unrighteousness, whether you feel it or not. And that's that's important to remember, because we tend to evaluate our the health of our spiritual life by the health of our emotions. Emotions are a fickle barometer to the spiritual life. Don't base your spiritual life on your emotions. Base it off the Word of God. Now, there is a sense where the emotions definitely play a part, particularly with conviction, but when you know that you have done what the, what the Bible says, Lord, I have confessed. I know without a doubt I have confessed everything I'm aware of. If there's something else throughout the day you want to make me aware of, please do it. I'll confess it as well because I want to be in fellowship with you. I don't want to be out of fellowship with you. And regardless of how I feel about it, I know it is true because your word says it right there. Forgiveness is a promise to claim. It is not a feeling. So, here's the second principle Confession to God restores our fellowship with God. Confession to God restores our fellowship to God. The word confess in the original language is homo logeo. Homo means same, logeo means to speak, to speak the same or to say the same thing to confess means you're saying the same thing about your sin that God is. You're speaking the same language so to degree, so so to speak. I read about a um, a little boy named Stephen, a 5-year-old boy named Stephen was walking his poodle and he was really jerking the leash real hard, you know, pulling the poodle around and being rough with the poodle, and his father saw him and had spoken to him about this before. And so Uh, The father sort of made his appearance known to Stephen, and Stephen saw the father, see him, and the father said, uh, would you like to tell me how sorry you are? And Stephen said, well, I don't know how much you saw. (laughs) Don't you love kids? So true. Do you want to confess? Well, I don't know exactly how much I need to confess. God sees it all. He saw how much we've jerked the poodle. And uh, might as well confess it all. God saw it all. Walking in the light is demonstrated not by a denial or a redefining of sin, calling it a mistake, but confessing it honestly and open to God. Um, I don't know. If you uh, look at social media a lot, You know, some of it's okay, check on the family, this and that. But boy, when you spend a lot of time on there, statistically speaking, you get depressed. Because you see the perfect life of everybody else. You see a curated life. It's like we've talked about before. It's like Christmas cards. It took 1,000 photographs to get that one photograph that you want to represent your family to everybody. And that's not your family. That's a moment in time. That's an accident. (laughs) (laughs) The reality is, you know, we all show up with bedhead and you know clothes that are disheveled, and hearts that struggle. We've all sinned. I've sinned. You have sinned. And it may be that you have never come to Christ, and you need to realize, you know what? I, uh, I need to quit thinking that I'm going to earn my way to heaven. It's not going to happen. Only Christ is the means by which I'm going to get there. Or maybe you've been a Christian for years and you continue to run from the sins of your past, that you feel emotionally like you're dragging a bag of concrete and you can't get around it. It's sort of like Pilgrim on the journey to the celestial city. You've got this backpack, this burden that you can't shake. I urge you, if this is true, to stop running, to quit hiding, to refuse to bury the truth, to face the light and quit obsessing over your shadow. Jesus died to take care of everything. And if you've got shame that's connected with the sin, realize that if the sin has been removed, then the shame for that sin's been removed, and you need not dwell on it anymore. The best you can do to take from it is is a lesson learned, never to do it again. Tell it all to Jesus. Because he is the cure for our shame. The cure for shame is honesty. The cure for shame is honesty in the context of of unconditional love. And that's what God gives us. Forgiveness in Christ is not an emotion to feel. It is a promise to claim. It really is. Well, look at verse 10. The final verse here of chapter 1. John writes, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Basically, John points out to say, look, if we deny, if we deny sin in our lives, it's not only that we that lie, but we call God a liar because God says there is sin in our lives. Uh, don't get the impression that John is saying that by confessing, you, now you've got freedom to sin. He doesn't want us to walk in darkness, but rather God's grace gives us the, the, the safe haven to learn to obey. Chapter 2. Look at the first couple of verses of this chapter. John writes, "My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, uh, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world." Again, I love john's honesty. I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin now, when you sin, here's how to deal with it. <laughs> Is't that great? I love it I'm writing this to you so you won't sin now. Let's be honest. when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Uh, the whole basis by which we can confess our sins and be restored is Jesus Christ. He's called three things here in these in these uh, couple of verses. first, he's called an advocate, then he's called the righteous, and then he's called the propitiation, or at least the New American Standard says that. That's a word we never use, except when we're reading First John 2. Uh, propitiation, what does that mean? The, the New uh, International Version says something like atoning sacrifice. That's a really, what is it, Jeannie? Atones? Okay, it, it's the idea of, uh, of satisfaction, that God is completely satisfied. That Jesus was the propitiation in the sense the complete satisfaction of payment for our sins. And uh, he's called, Jesus is called our advocate. The, the word is used of a, of a defender in a courtroom. Uh, Peter, I remember, uh, remember when Peter writes about our adversary, the devil, that's the other guy. That's the lawyer that wants to get you. But this is the advocate. He is the one who is on our side, defending us. And that's a beautiful picture. When we sin, we have Jesus as our defense lawyer. And the basis of his defense is his own righteousness. Isn't that a great picture? That Jesus defends us based on himself, because he is the righteous one, and he is the propitiation or the satisfaction of the payment for our sins. So when we sin, we have an advocate that appeals to us uh, on our behalf because of what Jesus himself has done. So here's the third and final principle from the text. Christ's intercession for us provides the security for our continual fellowship with God. Christ's intercession for us provides the security for our continual fellowship with God. You know, Jesus isn't just sipping tea at the right hand of the Father and waiting for the rapture. He is busy. He is busy. Jesus interceding for us didn't just happen after the ascension. He interceded. Think about it, that all throughout the Gospels. How many times do we see Jesus praying for his disciples? He prayed for them a lot. In fact, remember in the upper room that final night, he told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. There's Jesus interceding. That same night he took them out. John 17 is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus interceding for his disciples. And we're included in that chapter. Jesus interceding for us. And now that he has ascended to the right hand of God, he is interceding for us. Whenever we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I had a bunch of good friends um, not long ago. Well, actually, it was long ago now. Can't, you know, the older you get, you can't keep saying not long ago. <laughs> this was long ago. I just say it that way. A couple, th- two, couple decades, two, three decades. How long was it? Anyway, it was a while back. They were in uh, in front of a judge. They had crossed the line. The, the law found them guilty of, uh, of what they were found guilty of, and they were being sentenced. And I came to witness their sentencing. It was tough. I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a, in a situation like that where someone that you knew really well was about to be sentenced, and the judge basically held the life of your friend or family member or whoever it was in his hand or her hand. And one of the f- friends I had, I'll call him Fred, had two little boys, had a wife. Fred was a man's man. I mean, he was big. He was he played college football. He was like, you know, two of the, two of the guys on the front line. He basically played both those positions. He was a massive man and gentle, wonderful, wonderful. Huge, gentle, great guy. But he was found guilty. He he had broken the law. And the judge was about to uh, pass sentence on how he was found guilty on several counts, and he was, uh, the judge was about to pass sentence on how much prison time he would have for each count. And his wife's there. I don't think his little boys were there, but I knew, obviously, that he had boys. But his wife was there. I remember that very well. And as the judge was about to pass sentence, he asked Fred, he said, um, Do you have anything to say? Before I pass sentence on you. And it was like a 10 second silence. And then finally, you know, I saw Fred, he just started shaking. And finally, he just said, Please, please have mercy. He was like about three times that loud. And the whole courtroom just went dead silent. And everybody that knew Fred and knew this strong, strapping guy absolutely brought to his knees. By the fact that he was guilty, he deserved it, and he was about to hear the bad news. And the, uh, uh, the judge said, I'll paraphrase, he says, uh, uh, For count one, five years. For count two, five years. For count three, five years. And every time this said, I, I, I watched his wife just crumple, got lower and lower and lower. And then the judge finally said, and I dismiss incarceration on all counts." In other words, you don't have to go to prison. But he gave him a very stringent home, uh, home, rest- home confinement and probation. Well, the relief on the wife's face and Frank, uh, Frank, sorry, I meant to call him Fred. <laughs> His name was Frank. I guess seeing Fred back there uh, kind of messed me up. Anyway, the relief was to all of us who knew and loved Frank. It was it was a wonderful, wonderful day. But I thought about I thought about the individual that's going to stand before Jesus one day and not have uh, an advocate on the bench, but will instead be given the just due. And I thought those of us who deserve our just due, that we have an advocate before the Father. Our judge is our advocate. The one who can decide is one who has already decided that we have the righteousness of Christ. Our defender before God is righteous and therefore effective. Now, before class, Olga handed me this story, and I want to read part of it. I Keep these coming, Olga. This is great. But uh, I want to end with uh, this on a little lighter note than that. United States President Franklin Delano Roosevelt often endured long receiving lines at the White House. And as the stories told, he complained that no one paid attention to what was said. So he decided to experiment at a reception. To everyone that passed down the line, he shook his or her hand and said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. (laughs) The guests responded with phrases like, Marvelous, keep up the good work, sir. It wasn't until the end of the line greeting the ambassador from Bolivia that the ambassador's words were actually heard, or that the president's words were actually heard. Nonplussed, the ambassador whispered, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) Oh, that's great. But then it goes on to apply this, But I'm thinking, you know what? Aren't we glad that we can hear God's words? You ever wonder if God thinks, man, if they just listen to what I'm saying. God doesn't tease us with, you know, statements like the president made, but um, he gives us the real thing, and he's told us. He's told us in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, it's right there. The opportunity's there. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is asking, do you hear what I'm saying? The promise is there for you. Do it. Take it. Enjoy that forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we've looked at two wonderful bits of good news this morning, and we're grateful for both. The first, that even though we're sinners and deserve to be condemned, our wonderful Savior Jesus, the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, has died for us, for those who believe in him, not only for us, but for the whole world, for any who would believe in him. Thank you for that wonderful bit of good news. But to make it even better, you have provided a way that we can have daily, moment-by-moment fellowship and joy with you, knowing that if we will simply confess and be honest with you about our sin, that you'll forgive us, and that we can have immediate restoration and walk in the light. Father, thank you for the many, thousands, maybe millions of times in my life that I have availed myself of this wonderful promise. Thank you for those of my brothers and sisters here today who have done the same thing. But we pray specifically for any who are here that for some reason continue to stare at their shadow, continue to wander and wonder why there is such a joylessness in their walk with you that you would give them the strength to confess what they know and to allow your spirit to wash over them with the truth of this promise that they can also walk in the light. Surround them also with those who can give them comfort and good counsel beyond simply these verses. But Lord, we begin with the verses and thank you for the truth of their promise. Thank you for our wonderful advocate, Jesus, how we long to see him soon. Thank you for his delay that brings about the salvation of many thousands of people every day. And we pray in his name. Amen.